the irony, of course, is that Madison and Jefferson, who both take these moralistic stands against slavery, are the ones who did nothing and freed essentially none of their slaves. Whereas Washington, who was the guy who needed to learn, who needed to, who didn't get it at first, does get it so much that he, he does free some slaves. I think some of that was with an eye to his posterity. I think he understood that this was a crime that was gonna look bad for years and centuries. Hello, and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter, and I'm the editor. And today I'm speaking with David O. Stewart. And the subject is George Washington, the first president of the United States. David's just written a new book. It's just come out in paperback. It's called George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. And obviously there you, you can hear we, we were talking about slavery and that difficult subject that has touched so many of the founding fathers. I think a, a majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence own slaves whilst signing a document talking about um, freeing people. James Madison, who David was just mentioning, he's written a book about James Madison, fourth president of the United States, own slaves. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, own slaves famously. So we talk about that um, quite a bit. We also talk about the early years of George Washington. So it's interesting because George Washington, I I knew that he was a great general from the Declaration um, from the War of Independence, but really having read David's fantastic book, I now you can see him much more of a, as a man and also a, a, a brilliant political operator. Now on the subject of slavery. Uh, on our website, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you, we have a really, a, a, just a brilliant story, but it's a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching tale, really. It's it's entitled Heart of Darkness, The Slave Ship Zong. Now, this is written by Giles Milton, one of our authors, and it's a, uh, it's a tale of a horrific event during the 19th century when uh, slaves were essentially, well, they were murdered during a, uh, a crossing. It's a famous story. I'm not sure if you know about it, but um, it's definitely worth reading. Available for free on our website. As I say, I'll put a link in. Elsewhere on the website, we've got our Aspects of History book club with Leander Delisle, an interview with her and an article about the trial of King Charles I, which was, uh, anniversary was in January. Speaking of anniversaries, on the 22nd of February, so that's just two days ago, was George Washington's birthday. So that's why we're doing the podcast on George Washington. So uh, happy George Washington uh, birthday as of two days ago. Um, I'm sure the great man is is um, very happy wherever he is. And finally on our website, we've got a little homage, homage to Bernard Cornwall, who is the f- cover for our latest magazine that was out uh, earlier on this month, where I got to interview Bernard, 
And so what we've done is we've, uh, for a number of our authors, we've got them to write a, just a little snippet about Bernard Cornwall, the author of the Sharp books, also wrote um, The Last Kingdom, the, the story about uh, King uh, Alfred the Great and Uhtred. And our authors describe the books that interest them the most. For me, it's all sharp. Love a bit sharp. Right, so on with the interview. Now, uh, if you want to get hold of me, uh, you, can, you can as ever through the Twitter. It's at OllieWCQ. That's O-L-L-I-E-W-C-Q. Um, next week, uh, we'll, we'll have part two of, of David Stewart talking about George Washington as president and as, um, uh, as, a, as, as what sort of man he was. And then following that, we're going to be hitting March, the Ides of March. So I've got Peter Stothard coming on, who's written a, a fantastic book about the assassination of Julius Caesar and how the assassins were all hunted down one by one. And so we'll be talking about that uh, as well. So that's coming up. And with that further ado, I will leave you in my capable hands talking to David about George Washington. Okay, David Stewart, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you well, for joining for us. Well. <laughs> Sorry, I've <laughs> talked over you there. Um, now, you're, you're my first American guest David, my first American historian, and uh, we're here to talk about George Washington, which is the title of your book. Um, but importantly, the, 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 the strap line, the political rise of America's founding father is gives gives a hint to the, the main thrust, really, of your book, I feel, having read it or nearly finished it, um, which is that Generally, in this country, in, in Britain, um, we view George Washington as a, a great general who became first president. But, but really, your book, you demonstrate how much of a brilliant politician he was. And that's not something I, I guess um, he's as known for as much um, over here. Uh, was that something that you discovered whilst writing about him or was it something you always thought about but then... Uh, and so thought it deserved more analysis. Uh, it was a, a process, as it always is. Um, I wanted to write about Washington because I'd done several books on our founding era. <clears throat> and it seemed that I was sort of writing around the main subject, which was Washington, that he really was the essential person or the phrase that's often used here as the indispensable man. And uh, as I was poking around, uh, at least in this country, uh, saying you're going to write about George Washington generally uh, is greeted with groans and, you know, oh, God, not another one. Um, and I was looking for something, you know, that people hadn't noticed much. And it was this political theme. Uh, the galvanizing fact was he had four key elections in his life as uh, commander-in-chief of the army as uh, uh, president of our constitutional convention and then twice as president, uh, the first president. 
Uh, he won them all, of course, but he won them unanimously, which um, is inconceivable today. Um, but it was pretty inconceivable in the 18th century. I mean, it just didn't happen other than with George Washington. So I thought that was worth looking at and understanding better. Um, and, and I came away with real uh, uh, admiration for his ability to navigate politically. He, he starts out in life as something of a doofus uh, politically. He's, he's uh, sort of full of himself. He's a young man who's had too much success too early. And he alienates a lot of people he should be smart enough not to. Um, but he learns. Uh, we all like to think we get smarter as we get older, but he actually did. <laughs> so um, I thought that was a, a terrific story to try to try to uh, trace and, and, and pick up the lessons that he did um, incorporate into his his career and his public persona. Yeah, I mean, th that is the amazing thing is, is, as you say, how he wins all these elections so comfortably. There didn't seem to be any he didn't um, that were that close. But you mentioned his success early in life. Um, but so when he's a, a soldier fighting in fighting uh, on in sort of out in the frontier land, I, I I loved your descriptions. But it was very much sort of echoes of um, you know Last of the Mohicans, Finnemore Cooper. It's it's brilliant stuff. It really is. But he uh, but Washington. Uh, it, whilst he makes his name for himself and he becomes famous uh, not only in North America, but also in, in Britain uh, um, during those clashes, there are sort of three main events that I wanted to ask you about, um, which were, um, is it Jamonville, Fort Necessity, and then uh, Monongahela? I'm probably not pronouncing um, them very oh, well. You got them all but the last one, Monongahela. Right, Monongahela. Right, yes, but um, so Jamonville is controversial because it's sort of um, uh, there's a bit debate about it, and and this is the the seven year. This is the start of the Seven Years' War, or is as in America, it's just it's called the French and Indian War. Um, yeah, I, it has uh, it became a diplomatic flashpoint uh, because the. British uh, were, of course, uh, very anxious about the French moving into the Ohio Valley, which was a key strategic area on our frontier. Uh, and the French wanted to move in there. Uh, and they were feeling each other out. And Washington was part of that. And that's where he sort of had some adventures and um, attracted some public attention. Uh, he was out there with troops, uh, Virginia troops, which, you know, it's, it's a special breed back then. They, they tended not to be terribly good. Um, and also uh, Indian allies, um, a small group, but um, they were, like most of the Indians in that era, extremely uh, good fighters. Uh, and they do happen upon, they hear that there are there is a French uh, detachment close by and they go see them or look for them. Uh, the Indians, of course, find them. The Virginians probably couldn't have found them in 20 years. Um, and they're sleeping and they're just, you know, they don't even have pickets out. It, it's an odd thing. But there are 20 of them, which is a lot. You know, in those days out in that part of the world, uh, you know, three men was a big group. 
So 20 was, felt like a military detachment. Um, so Washington uh, surrounded them with the forces he had and uh, attacked and moved in. He called for the, them to surrender. They did not by his account. Of course, the French said that they did um, and were completely peaceful. And this, uh, they end up taking the French prisoners, but they kill um, something like 10 and then have one wounded. And, and if you study military history, that's, that's a bad ratio. That's not what happens in battle. Um, you generally have substantially more wounded than killed. So it's pretty clear somebody killed prisoners. Um, and it has been laid on the heads of the uh, Indians uh, who were there, who were quite bitter against the French at, the, at that time, this particular group. Uh, and it's clear at the very minimum, Washington lost control of his men uh, or his allies, whoever did it. Uh, and, and he was, sorry, so he was very young at the time, wasn't he? He's only 22. Yes, he, he's 22. Um, he, he's had this wonderful success, which you described, and he's been given more responsibility than he can really handle. Uh, and that's uh, evident here. Uh, but, you know, at some level, he's thrilled that he wins. You know, <laughs> he, he, he captures these people and then begins a several year a diplomatic argument between the British and the French as to who started it, who was right, who was wrong. The French claimed it was just a diplomatic mission, which is not plausible. Uh, Washington had conducted a diplomatic mission, and when he did it, he walked right up to the French forts and he, you know, said, here I am, I'd like to talk to you, and there were only three of them there. Um, the French were, you know, moving secretively through the woods and not disclosing their presence, and were there in what amounted force. Uh, so I, I'm, and they had, you know, announced that they were going to take the, this land, that it was their land, it was the King's, uh, King Louis's land. Um, so it, it was everything but an actual declaration of war. I, I don't much fault Washington for what he did. I, I think losing control of the allies at the end and the slaughter of the apparent slaughter of the prisoners is a bad moment. Um, he just was young and inattentive and probably flushed with his success. Um, but uh, whether to challenge them, whether to uh, attack, uh, that one doesn't bother me much. I mean, they had, uh, the French had hundreds of troops in uh, that part of the world at the time. Um, they were trying to take over. Well, the I mean, also the idea that um, he, he's responsible for the start of the Seven Years' War, to me, is is odd because Britain and France, uh, as has been the case for centuries, uh, are always looking for an excuse um, to 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 get going. Really, um, well, inevitably, in those days, it was pretty easy to start a war between Britain and France. And uh, you know, there was that guy who brought his severed ear into Parliament. I mean. It, the uh, War of Jenkins here, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it, it was no, no, no big deal. Uh, no. You, you can trace that, you know, it was the apparent first hostilities. Um, but if people didn't want, you know, if the French and the British didn't want to go to war, they could have avoided it. 
um, it, this, there was nothing inevitable about this uh, for, because it does evolve into a, a truly global conflict. Mm. Um, so, so the next episode at Fort Necessity is really interesting to me because this is where he has to surrender having been surrounded. Um, and and this, this is again quite controversial, isn't it, in his career? Yeah, he, he's sort of blundering around the forest with, uh, again, unfortunately, uh, Virginia soldiers. And uh, uh, he has Indian allies who leave him as soon as he sets up his camp at Fort Necessity, which is, uh, 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 the, the opinions are unanimous. It is possibly the stupidest place he could have um, set up camp. It was in the middle of a meadow surrounded by forest. So he made his men perfect targets and provided perfect cover for anybody who wished to attack them. And of course, the, the French and the Indian opponents did wish to attack them. So it was a day-long battle that consisted of the Virginians uh, sitting there in this silly stockade. Uh, it actually wasn't even big enough to hold all of them, so some of them were outside and basically just getting shot. Uh, and, and being unable to retaliate, it was quite miserable. And uh, you know, the, the troops break into the alcohol, the, the liquor supply, and they start. You know, if you're going to go, you might as well go. Uh, you know, feeling good. Um, and it, it's a. It starts raining. I mean, it, it's a miserable time. He, Washington realizes. You know, he's. They're not going to get out of there alive. Um, so he uh, begins. Uh, peace conversations, and, and he he's in such a terrible situation because the Indians, who were his allies, left. They looked, took one look at this, and said, "This is ridiculous. We're not going to die here." Uh, the negotiations are, and he has no fr French, um, which is uh, an embarrassment to him through his life that he has no other languages. But he has to rely on a translator. Uh, and he, they bring back, his translator and negotiator come back with an agreement that uh, Washington claims he didn't notice that it included a concession uh, that they had uh, assassinated uh, Jumonville. And, uh, you know, the word wasn't all that elusive. I mean, it's, yeah, it's I, the same word in English. Uh, as in French, yeah. So, you know, if he'd actually read it, um, he would have seen it. Um, again, he's 23 now. He's had possibly the worst day of his life. Um, and, you know, his focus is not great. Uh, and he signs it. And this is a tremendous diplomatic failure. I mean, it, militarily, it's a disaster. People die. Um, his troops are you know, limp off. They leave with the honors of war, which is all Washington actually cared about. And that was sort of uh, silly, um, although important at the time. Uh, what they have done, though, what he has done by signing that document is given the French a weapon to say that uh, they intended, uh, that he intended to kill Jumonville, knowing he was a diplomat. Uh, I accept that Washington didn't know, but it was just such a symptom of how how young, immature, 
unready for command he was. I mean, the whole episode was. It, it was a terrible episode, and he, he leaves the military service for a few months at that point, and, and you can't uh, really put lipstick on that pig. It, it, it was a bad episode. Well, uh, it, I was reading it almost um, relieved to, to know that someone like George Washington could not read um, his, his, uh, his brief properly when he should be um because when i was that age i'm sure i uh, <laughs> we've all done it haven't we well there are times you just um don't get it right and and this was one of his um mm. you know, the older washington could well have made military blunders he was never a genius militarily but he would not have misunderstood the importance of what he was signing but but that one thing that comes across is he always seems to learn from his uh, mistakes or, or 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 he learns from experience i mean i know we focused militarily um in his early career but when he he becomes a farmer um uh he he's always looking at what lands are, what what crops are working well what what isn't working well i i always i, I found that very interesting about his character um you know he's he's inquisitive as well isn't he yeah, he's very driven to improve, uh, both himself personally, but also everything he does. Uh, and he, he does learn uh, um, how to manage an army and uh, military matters. You know, when he goes off to command the Continental Army, he's got, uh, you know, military handbooks in his saddlebags because he, he, he knows he doesn't really know enough. He's got to learn it. And as a farmer. He was a great experimenter and was always trying to figure out what was the most efficient way to do something. Uh, he starts out as a tobacco planter, which is what prestigious rich people did in uh, Virginia. Um, and his land was bad for that. Um, tobacco is a harsh plant and, and uh, saps the soil, but his land just wasn't rich enough. Uh, and so he ditches it after a couple of years of frustration and moves into raising wheat and uh, uh, corn. And he ends up with a G. Washington brand of flour that he markets through the Caribbean and the other colonies. So uh, he, he was not one to persist in error. <laughs> he, would, uh, he was very capable of what we would call today pivoting and uh, trying something else. Yeah, it's a it's a laudable uh, it's a laudable trait to have. Now, one thing I wanted, we're going off slight tangent here, is is he also grew hemp. Now, um, I read a brilliant novel, um, Thomas Pynchon's Mason and Dixon, and I'm not sure if you've read that. It's I, I I've read about forty percent of it. I found it pretty difficult. <laughs> oh, I, I loved it. Um, there is a there is a scene where. Mason and Dixon. It, it was the, the artificial Dixon. duck. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the mechanical they, duck. Yes, yes, yes. The, I, from the French chef. I found that very funny. Um, but but they, as they're tracing the Mason Dixon line, which it would need to be known as, they do um, pop by Mount Vernon. And George Washington is there with his, his wife, Martha, uh, both high as kites on their supply of hemp. Um, but I don't know if you got to that in the novel. Um, but I, I don't remember the scene. I believe that is uh, uh, poetic Fiction. license. 
Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. I yeah. Um, I've always wanted to get one of those licenses. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's yeah, so he's a fascinating character. His, his family uh, is very interesting as well. I mean, he he seemed to have a very close relationship with his older half brother Lawrence. Who... Uh, Lawrence is a terribly important figure to him. Um, uh, George's father dies when George is 11. So there are some critical years coming up when he's not going to have a father. Uh, Lawrence was 14 years older, had served with the British in a Caribbean campaign uh, as leading some Virginia uh, troops and was a real comer. Uh, he seems to have had the Washington uh, ambition gene and, uh, you know, married the daughter of the richest man in the colony who happily lived next door uh, because he was the eldest. Lawrence had inherited the great best property and so he owned what becomes Mount Vernon. He renamed it Mount Vernon and he takes George under his wing. I think he sees and, and there are other brothers that he doesn't help. <laughs> But um, he sees something in George. He sees George as having great potential. And so he carries him around and he launches him and he instructs him in the ways of the world. Um, and an interesting thing to me is I think it was it was a great blow to George Washington when Lawrence dies. Uh, George is only 20. Lawrence is 33 or 34. He has tuberculosis, which was you know, everywhere in those days. Uh, and I'm sure it was incredibly saddening, but in an odd way, it sort of allowed George to become the alpha Washington male. Um, when Lawrence might well have been, uh, he was on his way. He was a member of the House of Burgesses. He was leading uh, companies to uh, settle in the Western lands. Um, he was the guy who had married a Fairfax girl. Um, he was going to be a force to be reckoned with, and he might might have blocked George a bit. So, um, you know, there's what if history is always, uh, you know, a, a bit diaphanous, but uh, yeah. it, it, it comes to mind. You, you could have been writing a book, uh, Lawrence Washington. It's not impossible. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting, I, but I because I, I was thinking that when I was reading, w would Lawrence because Lawrence was educated in England, um, he was he was much better educated than George. George had was always embarrassed by his poor education. It, it, I I was thinking to myself, would Lawrence have, um, would would he have automatically sided with with the rebels, or would he have been a more loyalist, um, taken a more loyalist side? It's difficult to know, I suppose. Yeah, I, I don't. We don't have enough of a window into Lawrence's uh, life that I'm comfortable saying that. Uh, you know, the Fairfaxes, who were the richest landowners uh, in Virginia, they own as much land as is in in our state of New Hampshire. Um, several of them sympathized with the rebels in Revolution. Uh, George Washington's great friend, George William Fairfax, um, opposed his, you know, he was living in Britain at this point uh, when the war breaks out, um, and he opposed his government's policy and was known to have. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's not easy to uh, predict. I mean, the Washingtons had been in this country for four generations, so there were still ties to England. Uh, 
George's father had business connections back in Britain. He went back there a couple of times uh, as an adult uh, for business reasons. And the two elder half-brothers were both educated there. So, uh, you know, George is sort of cut off from that when his father dies. There's not money to send him. And uh, that may have sort of uh, determined a lot of future history. Mm. Um, now, George, one one um, looming um, factor in in his uh, in his lands and in his farming is, is that his his ownership of of a, a, what over a hundred odd slaves, and slavery is something he he sort of he has a kind of he doesn't sound it doesn't come across as he's obviously not a huge uh, enthusiast for slavery, but at the same time he doesn't really take any steps to um, uh, to rid himself of, of, of the practice. Yeah, there, I, I see two stages in his life about slavery. Um, until he goes off for the Revolutionary War, and he's a mature man then, he's in his 40s, um, I could find no evidence of unhappiness, qualms about slavery. Uh, uh, the people he owned were the labor force he had access to, um, and he used them. Uh, he was not a particularly benevolent slave owner, slave master. Uh, he was always a demanding boss, and that was whether you were free or enslaved. And that meant, um, in the case of the enslaved, that you know there was corporal punishment, and which is you know flogging. And uh, a lot of demands. The people who visited Mount Vernon sometimes were surprised that he personally would would strike slaves um, and treated them peremptorily. Uh, in the war, uh, his attitude changes. I think largely because there are African American soldiers who fight in the Continental Army. Uh, he actually doesn't want them at first, but he has to take them because the British are recruiting uh, African-Americans. And he learns that these are impressive people in many instances, and they are fighting and suffering and dying to save his liberty. And you would have to be an ox not to be moved by that. And he was, and it changes his view. He decides he's going to become a good slave owner. And in America in those times, that meant that you wouldn't break up families by selling off part of the family and keeping the rest. Um, and after a couple of years of that, he clearly decides, well, you know, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a good slave owner. So he decides to try to essentially buy his slaves so he can free them. Um, it's slightly arcane legally, but he owns about 40% of the slaves himself. But he has married a very rich woman, Martha, and she has control, but not ownership, of a lot of land and a lot of slaves because her first husband was really rich. She brings that property into the marriage, but she doesn't own it. She just has the life estate in it, the use of it. And it is actually preserved for the benefit of her heirs, who are 
ultimately become her four grandchildren. And Washington can't do anything about the slaves owned by the estate without paying their value to the estate. Otherwise, it would be illegal. He could be taken to court by the grandchildren or their grandchildren's uh, spouses, which is more likely. Um, so he spends years trying to raise money. He has assembled a tremendous portfolio of land that nobody else wants. Um, he's got 50,000 acres out west that there's no real market for at this time. He tries to sell it. He tries to lease it. He tries to lease Mount Vernon, not, not the building, but the, the farms there. He's got five different farms he's uh, created uh, just to get enough cash flow so he can do this thing. And he only confides in a few close um, uh, confidants what he's trying to do, but he fails. He can't find buyers. He tries to find uh, British buyers and British farmers come over to uh, farm. He always thought Europeans were better farmers than Americans. Um, so he ends up only with control over the 40% he owned, which by the time of his death was over 100 slaves. It was 120 or so. And he does free them in his will. Uh, the others pass to the grandchildren and a few of them are freed by grandchildren, but not very many. Washington leaves enough money to support uh, the old, the worn out slaves in retirement and also to pay for education and training for the children of the ones he owned. Uh, and we get to the awkward thing about the public Washington. Uh, he told people privately that he opposed slavery. This is after the war when his mind has changed and that he would like to see all of the slaves uh, subject to what were known as gradual emancipation laws, which is how our northern states did it. We had slavery in every state because the British brought it to us. Uh, uh, the northern states adopted these gradual emancipation laws, which required you know, people to get to the age of 21 and offspring, and it could take decades and did. I think the last slaves in New York were in the 1840s. Uh, and he said he would like to see those laws throughout the country. But of course, the Southern economy was built on slave labor and there weren't gonna be such laws. He knew that. And he made the political calculation that saying anything publicly about slavery, challenging it publicly, had the potential to destroy the Union and certainly to destroy his career. And he made the pretty cold calculation that he, he shouldn't do it. So that's not the most comfortable part about Washington. Um, you know, slavery has been part of our, uh, our, our burden for a long time. Um, it was a crime and uh, it took a long time to fix it and we haven't really fixed it yet. Yeah, yeah, the legacy lives on. It's, it's um, uh, and how, uh, it's an interesting subject around this time because it, you, I, you say that um, Washington could see that this would be a problem between, with the union, um, you know, this, uh, this is what 60 odd, 70 odd years before the, the civil war. So 
Uh, how about his peers? Because Jefferson fam famously owned slaves. Uh, the majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. Because as you just as you've just illustrated, it was, you know, part of the culture. Uh, amongst his peers, um, amongst the founding fathers, how how many of them had the same reservations that he did? Well, it's a mix. Uh, I don't think any of them thought it was virtuous. Uh, you couldn't. Uh, it was simply a question of how hard-headed you were about it. My description of Washington until the Revolutionary War is that he was completely hard-headed about it, just didn't didn't reflect on it. Whereas a guy like James Madison, you know, when he's 16 years old, he's appalled by slavery. He, he, he just can see that it's a horror. Um, the irony, of course, is that Madison and Jefferson, who both take these moralistic stands against slavery, are the ones who did nothing. And freed essentially none of their slaves. Whereas Washington, who was the guy who needed to learn, who needed to, who didn't get it at first, does get it so much that he, he does free some slaves. I think some of that was with an eye to his posterity. I think he understood that this was a crime that was going to look bad for years and centuries. Uh, and I think most of the Americans of that era who were, you know, of a class to own slaves, were educated people. They knew it was wrong. Um, the Southerners just felt they couldn't do without it. We get a, a culture, not for another 20 or 30 years, uh, that says slavery's good, that these poor, benighted, dark-skinned people would be eating each other back in Africa, but for the civilizing influence of being slaves in America. In the founding era, you don't see any of that nonsense. I mean, it's just, they can't, they don't kid themselves about it. Uh, and it's only when the Southerners feel the threat of losing their enslaved workforce that they start concocting these, these nonsense stories. Well, that's the end of part one. And part two coming up next week, I continue my chat with David talking more about George Washington and his later life. But that difficult question of slavery impacts all those great figures of early American history. So it's some, one that uh, David tackles head on in his book. And it's something that, uh, well, as David said, America still lives with today. So I'll put links from the show notes uh, into the show notes of, of what I talked about. So those links at the beginning of the of the pod and also from what I discussed with David. In particular, Mason and Dixon, which is this brilliant novel um, written by Thomas Pynchon, published in 1997. And it's the story of Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, who were both astronomers and surveyors who... Well, they, they came up with the demarcation line separating Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. It's a hilarious novel, and even though written in 97, Pynchon is a genius for having captured sort of the, the atmosphere of America pre-Revolutionary uh, War. And, well, the 
populace are basically an unruly bunch and it's lots of fun. Heartily recommend it. Uh, As I said, we've got Peter Stothard coming up next uh, after David. So that'll be in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Just hitting around the time of the Ides of March and the assassination of Julius Caesar. And Peter's written a fantastic book about that. So that'll be lots of fun. But that's enough from me. So until next week, thank you and good night.